Welcome to Reading Christian Texts. Today we're reading from St. John Chrysostom and his work on the priesthood. And we will be reading chapter 13, Temptations of the Teacher. I have given sufficient proof of the experience needed by the teacher in contending for the truth. I have one thing more to add to this, a cause of untold dangers, or rather I will not blame the thing itself so much as those who do not know how to use it properly, in itself and conduces to salvation and to many benefits when it happens to be handled by earnest good men. And what is it? It is the great toil expended upon sermons delivered publicly to the congregation. In the first place, most of those who are under authority refuse to treat preachers as their instructors. They rise above the status of disciples and assume that of spectators, sitting in judgment on secular speech-making. In their case, the audience is divided, and some side with one speaker and other side with another. So in church they divide and become partisans, some of this preacher and some of that, listening to their words with favor or dislike. And this is not the only difficulty. There is another, no less serious. If it happens that a preacher weaves among his own words a proportion of other men's flowers, he falls into worse disgrace than a common thief. And often when he has borrowed nothing at all, he suffers on bare suspicion the fate of a convicted felon. But why mention the work of others? He is not allowed to repeat his own compositions too soon. For most people usually listen to a preacher for pleasure, not profit, like adjudicators of a play or concert. The power of eloquence which we rejected just now is more requisite in a church than when professors of rhetoric are made to contend against each other. Here too, a man needs loftiness of mind far beyond mine own littleness of spirit if he is to correct this disorderly and unprofitable delight of ordinary people and to divert their attention to something more useful so that church people will follow and defer to him and not that he will be governed by their desires. It is impossible to acquire this power except by these two qualities, contempt of praise and the force of eloquence. If either is lacking, the one left is made useless through divorce from the other. If a preacher despises praise yet does not produce the kind of teaching which is with grace seasoned with salt, he is despised by the people and gets no advantage from his sublimity. And if he manages this side of things perfectly well but is a slave to the sound of applause, again an equal damage threatens both him and the people, because through his passion for praise he aims to speak more for the pleasure than the profit of his hearers. The man who is unaffected by acclamation yet unskilled in preaching does not truckle to the people's pleasure, but no more can he confer any real benefit upon them because he has nothing to say. And equally, the man who is carried away with the desire for eulogies may have the ability to improve the people, but chooses instead to provide nothing but entertainment. That is the price he pays for thunders of applause. The perfect ruler then must be strong in both points to stop one being nullified by the other. When he stands up in the congregation and says things capable of stinging the careless, the good done by what he has said leaks away quickly if he then stumbles and stops and has to blush for want of words. Those who stand rebuked, being nettled by his words and unable to retaliate on him in any other way, jeer at him for his lack of skill, thinking to mask their shame by doing so. 
So, like a good charioteer, the preacher should have reached perfection in both these qualities in order to be able to handle both of them as need requires. For only when he is himself above beyond reproach in everyone's eyes will he be able, with all the authority he desires, to punish or pardon all who are in his charge. But until then, it will not be easy to do. But this sublimity must not only be displayed in contempt for applause, it must go further. If, it benef if its benefit is not, in turn, to be wasted, what else then must he despise? Slander and envy. The right course is neither to show disproportionate fear and anxiety over ill-directed abuse, for the president will have to put up with unfounded criticism, nor simply to ignore it. We should try to extinguish criticisms at once, even if they are false and are leveled at us by quite ordinary people, for nothing will magnify a good or evil report as much as an undisciplined crowd. Being accustomed to hear and speak uncritically, they give hasty utterance to whatever occurs to them without any regard for the truth, so we must not disregard the multitude, but rather nip their evil suspicions in the bud by convincing our accusers, however unreasonable they may be. We should leave nothing untried that might destroy an evil report. But if, when we have done all, our critics will not be convinced, then at last we must resort to contempt. For anyone who goes halfway to meet humiliation by things like this will never be able to achieve anything fine or admirable. For despondency and constant anxieties have a terrible power to numb the soul and reduce it to utter impotence. The priest should treat those whom he rules as a father treats very young children. We are not disturbed by children's insults or blows or tears, nor do we think much of their laughter and approval. And so with these people, we should not be much elated by their praise, nor much dejected by their censure, when we get these things from them out of season. This is not easy, my friend. I think it may be impossible. I do not know whether anyone has ever succeeded in not enjoying praise. If he enjoys it, he naturally wants to receive it. And if he wants to receive it, he cannot help being pained and distraught at losing it. People who enjoy being wealthy take it hard when they fall into poverty, and those who are used to luxury cannot bear to live frugally. So too, men who are in love with applause have their spirits starved not only when they are blamed offhand, but even when they fail to be constantly praised. Especially is this so when they have been brought up on applause, or when they hear others being praised. What troubles and vexations do you suppose a man endures if he enters the lists of preaching with this ambition for applause? The sea can never be free from waves, no more can his soul be free from cares and sorrow. For though a man may have great force as a speaker, which you will rarely find, still he is not excused continual effort. For the art of speaking comes not by nature, but by instruction. And therefore, even if a man reaches the acme of perfection in it, still it may forsake him unless he cult cultivates its force by constant application and exercise. So the gifted have even harder work than the unskillful. For the penalty for neglect is not the same for both, but varies in proportion to their attainments. No one would blame the unskillful for turning out nothing remarkable, but gifted speakers 
pursued by frequent complaints from all and sundry unless they continually surpass the expectation which everyone has of them. Besides this, the unskillful can win great praise for small successes. But as for the others, unless their efforts are very startling and stupendous, they not only forfeit all praise, but have a host of carping critics. The congregation does not sit in judgment on the sermon as much as on the reputation of the preacher, so that when someone excels everyone else at speaking, then he above all needs painstaking care. He is not allowed sometimes not to succeed, the common experience of all the rest of humanity. On the contrary, unless his sermons always match the great expectations formed of him, he will leave the pulpit the victim of countless jeers and complaints. No one ever takes it into consideration that a fit of depression, pang, anxiety, or in many cases anger, may cloud the clarity of his mind and prevent his productions from coming forth unalloyed, that, in short, being a man, he cannot invariably, re he cannot invariably reach the same standard or always be successful, but will naturally make many mistakes and obviously fall below the standard of his real ability. People are unwilling to allow for any of these factors, as I said, but criticize him as if they were sitting in judgment on an angel. And anyhow, men are so made that they overlook their neighbor's successes, however many are great, yet if a defect comes to light, however commonplace and however long since it last occurred, it is quickly noticed, fastened on at once, and never forgotten. So a trifling and unimportant fault has often curtailed the glory of many fine achievements. You see, my dear fellow, that the ablest speaker has all the more need for careful application, not application only, but greater tolerance than any of those I have so far mentioned. For plenty of people keep attacking him without rhyme or reason. They hate him without having anything against him except his universal popularity, and he must put up with their acrimonious envy with composure. For since they do not cover up and hide this accursed hatred, which they entertain without reason, they shower him with abuse and complaints and secret slander and open malice. And the soul which begins by feeling pain and annoyance about each of these things cannot avoid being desolated with grief, for they not only attack him by their own efforts, but they set about doing so through others as well. They often choose someone who has no speaking ability and cry him up with their praises and admire him quite beyond his deserts. Some do this through sheer ignorance, and others through ignorance and envy combined, to ruin the good speaker's reputation not to win admiration for one who does not deserve it. And that how minded man has to contend, not just against this kind of opponent, but often against the ignorance of a whole community. For it is impossible for a whole congregation to be made up of men of distinction, and it generally happens that the greater part of the church consists of ignorant people. The rest are perhaps superior to these, but fall short of men of critical ability by a wider margin than the great majority falls short of them. Scarcely one or two present have acquired real discrimination. And so it is inevitable that the more capable speaker receives less applause 
and sometimes even goes away without any mark of approval. You must face these ups and downs in a noble spirit, pardoning, pardoning those whose opinion is due to ignorance, grieving over those who maintain an attitude out of envy as miserable, pitiable creatures, and letting neither make him think the less of his own powers. For if a painter of first rank who excelled all others in skill saw the picture he had painted with great care scoffed at by men ignorant of art, he ought not to be dejected or to regard his painting as poor because of the judgment of the ignorant. Just as little should he, just as little should he regard a really poor work as wonderful and charming because the unlearned admire it. Let the best craftsman be the judge of his own handiwork too, and let us rate his productions as beautiful or poor, when that is the verdict of the mind which contrived them. But as for the erratic and unskilled opinion of outsiders, we should not so much as consider it. So to the man who has accepted the task of teaching should pay no attention to the commendation of outsiders, any more than he should let them cause his de him dejection. When he has composed his sermons to please God, and let this alone be his rule and standard of good oratory and sermons, not applause or commendation, then if he should be approved by men too, let him not spurn their praise. But if his hearers do not accord it, let him neither seek it or sorrow for it. It will be sufficient encouragement for his efforts, and one much better than anything else, if his conscience tell him that he is organizing and regulating his teaching to please God. For in fact, if he has already been overtaken by the desire for unmerited praise, neither his great efforts nor his powers of speech will be any use. His soul, being unable to bear the senseless criticisms of the multitude, grows slack and loses all earnestness about preaching. So a preacher must train himself above all else to despise praise. For without this addition, knowledge of the technique of speaking is not enough to ensure powerful speech. And even if you choose to investigate carefully the type of man who lacks this gift of eloquence, you will find he needs to despise praise just as much as the other type. For he will inevitably make mistakes if he lets himself be dominated by popular opinion. Being incapable of matching popular preachers in point of eloquence, he will not hesitate to plot against them, to envy them, to criticize them idly, and to do a lot of other disgraceful things. He will dare anything, if it costs him his very soul, to bring their reputation down to the level of his own insignificance. Besides this, he will give up the sweat of hard work, because a kind of numbness has stolen over his spirit. For it is enough to dispirit a man who cannot disdain praise and reduce him to a deep lethargy when he toils hard but earns all the less approbation. When a farmer labors on poor land and is forced to farm a rocky plot, he soon gives up his toil unless he is full of enthusiasm for his work or is driven on by fear of starvation. If those who can preach with great force need such constant practice to preserve their gift, what about someone who has absolutely no reserves in hand, but needs to get preaching practice by actually speaking? How much difficulty and mental turmoil and trouble must he put up with to be able to build up his resources just a little by a lot of labor? 
and if any of his colleagues of inferior rank can excel him in this particular work, he really needs to be divinely inspired to avoid being seized with envy or thrown into dejection. It requires no ordinary character. It certainly does not. Certainly not one like mine, but one of steel for a man who holds a superior position to be excelled by his inferiors and bear it with dignity. If the man who outstrips him in reputation is unassuming and very modest, the experience is just tolerable. But if he is impudent and boastful and vainglorious, his superior may as well pray daily to die. So unpleasant will the other man lake his life by flouting him to his face and mocking him behind his back, by detracting frequently from his authority and aiming to be everything himself. And his rival will have derived great assurance in all this from the license people grant him to say what he likes, the warm interest of the majority in him, and the affection of those under his charge. Or do you not know what a passion for oratory has recently infatuated Christians? Do you not know that its exponents are respected above everyone else, not just by outsiders, but by those of the household of faith? How then can anyone endure the deep disgrace of having his sermons received with blank silence and feelings of boredom as his listeners waiting for the end of the sermon as if it were a relief from after a fatigue? Whereas they listen to someone else's sermon, however long, with eagerness, eagerness, and are annoyed when he is about to finish, and quite exasperated when he decides to say no more. Perhaps this seems to you a trifling, negligible matter, because you have no experience of it. Yet it is enough to kill enthusiasm and paralyze spiritual energy, unless a man dispossess himself of all human passions, and studies to live like the disembodied spirits or not hounded by envy or vainglory or any other disease of that sort. If there actually is anyone capable of subduing this elusive, invincible, savage monster, I mean popular steam, and cutting off its many heads, or rather preventing their growth altogether, he will be able to repulse all these attacks easily and enjoy a quiet haven of rest. But if he has not shaken himself free of it, he will involve his soul in an intricate struggle, in unrelieved turmoil, and in the hurly-burly of desperation and every other passion. Why should I catalog all the other troubles, which no one can describe or realize without personal experience?